All right, how's it going today, you guys? Everybody hear me okay? The, the mic on, everything sounding good? Good, good, all right. Well, is it not on? Let me double check. It says I'm on up here. Good? All right. Well, I'm going to go ahead and get started. Today I'm going to be speaking. My, well, let me back up a little bit. Welcome to See Me Church. It's good to see you guys all the day. Where our mission is to love God and love people. My name is Kyle Popic. I'm an intern here with the campus ministry. And today I'm going to be speaking to you my last sermon in the series of Philippians. I don't know. There we go. Called A Fork in the Road. And this sermon is, it's an intriguing one. Because the way God designed life, everyone's unique. The Bible says that God forms each of us in our mother's womb. And he gives each person different personalities, different likes and dislikes, different strengths and weaknesses. And after people are born, life doesn't change, right? Different people have different experiences. And the crazy thing is, even if you live in just, even if we look at just America and just your job, there's a couple thousand people across the, across the country that do the same thing you do every day, nine to five. And the funny thing is, the way life works, you can be doing the same thing as somebody else at the exact same moment and have two very different experiences. And the interesting thing about this sermon is no matter what your life is like, no matter how different we all are, God has designed life so that we all come to this same fork in the road. And he lays out the same two paths for us to pick from with two very distinct destinations. And so that today, that's what we're going to look at, you guys. We're going to look at the two paths that God gives from this fork in the road and the two destinations that come from it. So without any more, we're going to go ahead and start in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. I'm going to put it on the screen. If you, can, if you would like to, you can follow along and turn there now. Give you guys a moment, then I'll start reading. All right. It says, Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. So here's the Apostle Paul, and he's speaking to the church in Philippi. And if you were with me from one of my earlier sermons, you remember that in chapter 3, Paul started that chapter writing to combat a group, known, a group within the church known as the Judaizers. And I'll summarize this, this group very quickly, but basically, they were a group of people that taught that you couldn't just become a Christian. They taught that you actually had to become a Jew first, and then you could become a Christian. So Paul spends the first part of chapter 3 combating against them, and he uses his life to do it. And then he tries to call the Philippians' focus back to Christ, again using his life. So we're picking up the story in the end of chapter 3, where uh, Paul is wrapping up that argument by saying, follow my example. And before we start looking at the fork and the decisions and the paths and all that good stuff, I wanted to stop here for a moment, because there's a hidden power in the scripture, but if, if you don't pay attention to it, you might miss it. And in order to really comprehend the power here, you have to comprehend the kind of example that Paul set for the Philippians. So I want to take a second just to look at the example of Paul. But he said, For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. He said, But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering, referring to his own death, on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, then I am glad and rejoice with all of you. He said, ooh, this microphone there. but he said, what is more, I consider everything a loss 
compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. Jesus, my Lord. And he closed by saying, not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. This was the example that Paul set. All four of these verses are verses that Paul wrote in the book of Philippians before calling them to follow his example. And if you look here, I want to talk about it because he sets the example of a life so devoted to Christ that everything else is lost. That he would actually rather die because that's to be closer with Christ. Then he sets the example of such selfless love that he rejoices in his own death if it might help someone else's faith. And then he sets the example of self-surrender when he says that I can consider everything else a loss compared to knowing God just a little better. And I want to point something out to you guys. Paul wrote the book of Philippians at the end of his life when he was imprisoned in Rome waiting to be killed. And when, so he went, when he wrote with the words, not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, here was Paul's spiritual resume. He had already been met by God personally on the road and heard his voice. He had taken part in three spiritual, um, excuse me, three missionary journeys. He had been used to found some of the uh, most successful churches of the first century. And he had been used by God to write about two-thirds of the New Testament. That was his resume. And here he says, I have not yet obtained it. And there's one more thing I want to I wanna look at when we're talking about the example of Paul. Is if you don't know the story of how Paul helped to found the Philippian church, it's in Acts chapter 16, and I encourage you to go read it. But there's a, there's a, story, in, in, there's a story in that founding that I want to share with you guys today, and it's one you're probably familiar with. It's the story of the Philippian jailer. And if you don't know the story, I'll summarize it very quickly, but while Paul was preaching in the city of Philippi, he was seized by the Jews, beaten and imprisoned so that he could be killed. And while he was imprisoned overnight, he and the, the ones he was working with were praying. And while they were praying, God sent an angel to the jail, shakes the jail up, opens up the cage. And the jailer, who had been assigned to guard them, wakes up from his sleep, and because the cage is open, thinks everybody is gone. And in Roman law, if you were assigned to guard a prisoner and they escaped on your watch, you were killed in their place. So the jailer goes to grab his sword to save himself the torture and to save himself the shame, of when everyone else comes in the morning to find the jail empty. And Paul cries out to him, do not harm yourself, we are all here. And then he tells the man who beat him, the man who imprisoned him to be killed, about Christ. And later that night, that man and all of his family become Christians. And here's the point that I want to ask you guys. If you were the Philippian jailer, and maybe 10 years after that night, you're sitting in jail with your family, and the man who helped you says, follow my example. What kind of power would that hold for you? Because we live 2,000 years removed from what was written, but they lived it. And it's meant to have that same power in our lives. You know, I've only been in the internship for about six months. It's a very small amount of time to be leading things. But it's taught me one lesson. And that one lesson that I've learned, at least one that I'm convinced of anyway, is it's not the most eloquent speakers or the most intelligent people or the best-looking people, the most talented people, the most hardworking people that make the best leaders. 
the best leaders set the example. And that's the standard that I've tried to think about as I've been an intern. Because Paul, what he's doing here, by saying, follow my example in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, he's standing before a church that he helped to form, a church that he knows personally, that he cares about deeply. And he's planting two feet in the ground. He's staring them in the face, and he's saying, be like me because I'm like Christ. Yeah. He wrote that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, follow my example as I follow Christ's example. And that's leadership. And that's the standard that I've tried to hold to myself. And it's hard because I fail so much more than I succeed. (laughs) But I think about that. In my life, could I be like Paul? Could I stand and I plant two feet in the ground, look at Andre and say, Andre, if you want to know Christ, know me because I know him. Say, Jacob, you know what? You want to you be like Christ, be like me, because I'm like him. Could I look at Hallie and say, Hallie, follow me as I follow Christ? But the thing, you guys, leadership isn't reserved for a 20-year-old intern. And it's not reserved for a minister. If you're a Christian in this room today, leadership is a role given to you. I'm sure you guys have heard about this already. I'm sure you've heard Joe and Gio speak about it. I've been in the internship, so I've definitely heard them speak about it the last couple months. But here at Simi Church, we have this belief in this heart called oikos. If you don't know what that means, I'll explain it briefly. But oikos, it means household. And what it is, it's the idea that God intentionally forms his children with specific talents and specific passions. And then he puts people into their lives so that by knowing you, they, they might learn more about Christ. Right. That they might see Christ in you. That by you living out your oikos, the people that, that God puts into your life, loving them, serving them, the church might be built. And I want to encourage you guys to take some time this morning, this holiday season, as we move into 2019, and this, and we gear this up even more to pray about it. And I encourage you to get your hearts behind it, because a church that's like that, a church where every person can stand forward and be like Christ for others, is a powerful place to be. I want to be part of something like that. But the thing, you guys, is it only works if we all buy in. It only works if we're all willing to be like Paul. So my question to you out of Philippians 3.17 this morning is, could you do that? If you're a parent, could you stand and look at your kid and say, be like me because I'm like Christ? Could you do that in your workplace or with your friends? Because like I said before, it's not the most eloquent speakers, the talent, most talented, most hardworking people that God uses to be leaders. But the best examples are the best leaders. Right, we're going to keep going. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 3, verse 18 and 19. I'll give you guys a second to go there, and I'll start reading. But it says, For as I have told you before, and now say again, even with tears... Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. 
Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. So here, Paul starts off by giving us the call, giving us the standard, the hope, and the example. And now he brings us in verse 18 to that fork in the road and that choice. And here in these two verses, he lays out the first path. He describes it a little bit, and he tells you where it ends. And we're going to do that in a moment. But before we do, I want to make a very clear point that Paul makes in verse 18. He calls this first path enemies of the cross of Christ. In other words, those who walk this path live as enemies of the cross. And there's a very clear distinction that I want to make. As I told you before, Paul started Philippians chapter 3 fighting against the Judaizers who were enemies because of what they taught. Now he confronts a different enemy who are enemies because of how they live. And here was a sobering thought that hit me while I was studying out this sermon. It's possible to live your life as a baptized enemy of the cross. Wow. Scary. So here's what I want to do this morning. Paul lays out a few practicals of what that looks like. And so I'm just going to go through them as he did. And I encourage you, if you don't find yourself on that list, then amen. And I, I would hope to be more like you. If you do find yourself on that list, let's repent. Amen. But here's three aspects of what it's like to live as an enemy of the cross. The first one is their God is their stomach. And I want to be very clear. Paul's not talking about worshiping a literal stomach, and he's not even referencing food specifically here. But what he's talking about is primal desires. And what he's really saying is that people who live as, the, as an enemy of the cross, they live according to their primal <laughs> desires. In other words, they're slaves to their sinful passions. Right. Paul talks about this. In Romans chapter 6, verse 16, he was writing about living life by the Spirit or the flesh. And when he was writing about it, he said, you are a slave to the one whom you obey. So the point here, you guys, is that though the enemies of the cross obey their sin. And it can look like a lot of different things. It could look like lust, pride, greed, arrogance, selfishness, wrath. The, the list goes on and on and on. And it's, I'm going to be honest with you guys. It's a little bit scary for me because when I was doing this sermon, I found myself on that list so often. Yeah. What I realized, though, is the difference between an enemy of the cross living according to their sinful passions and, the, and walking the next path is the decision to repent. Amen. And that's really what I, put, what I want to put before you guys this morning, is that if you find yourself living that first aspect, I did too. But let's repent. I want to talk about that second one now. The second aspect that Paul says here is their glory is in their shame. And what he means here is that not only do they do sinful things, but they're proud of what they do. They boast about it. And then they go further. They even commend others who do the same. And when I was studying out this passage, this was the one that hit me the least. The other two were stark and in my face when I read it. This one I brushed off. And I was quick to judge others. Because as I've shared before, and as I'm sure most of you are aware, I work as a delivery driver 
for Topper's Pizza in Camarillo. I'm a 20-year-old male. Most of the other drivers are too. So I'll leave you to guess what 20-year-old guys talk about when no one else is in the room. 90% of my conversations at work that I'm around, that I'm, I get pulled into, are this. It's guys talking about how high they can get and still come into work and drive. It's guys talking about how many drinks they had the night before or how many girls they had the night before. And they like to put it in my face because they'll, they'll come in and they'll be like, hey, Kyle, check this out. What do you think about this? And they, they put it in my face like this. And so when I read the scripture, that's what I immediately thought of. And it was easy for me to, to look at them and judge them and say, that's glory in your shame. That's pride and shameful acts. But as I studied out this passage deeper and as I let it sit on my heart, I realized something. And here's the danger of this second aspect to a Christian. It's subtle. It can sneak into your life without you realizing. Because my reaction was, I'm not really boastful in my sin. Usually I'm pretty ashamed of it. But I started to realize that's not always true. I live in a house with four guys. And if you've never had that experience, if you've never lived with four guys and no overarching authority, <laughs> let me tell you something. <laughs> Everything becomes an alpha male contest. <laughs> Everybody wants to be top dog. And I've been in my household before where the trash gets full to overflowing. And we've pulled off the top lid and we'll keep stacking it against the wall. <laughs> until it can't go any higher. And then, we won't take it then. We'll just open up a new bag and start a new one right next to it. <laughs> and the reason why, nobody wants to be the one to get up and take it out. And the other day, I was at home, and one of my roommates came to me, he's like, hey Kyle, can you, uh, can you wash your dishes? And I was sitting there, I wasn't busy, I didn't have anything to do, but I looked at him and I thought, you're not my dad. <laughs> And I said, no, I can't wash my dishes. I'll get to it when I can. And so he hesitated for a moment. And I could tell. Half of them wanted to start fighting with me, and half of them was like, is this really worth it? And he leaves. And when he left, I was like, that's right. That's it. <laughs> I thought to myself, I'm my own man. I do dishes when I want to do dishes. <laughs> Later that day, I was reminded of the example of Jesus washing the feet of sinners. <laughs> and it made me think about this. Because in that moment, my heart was so unchristlike. And I laugh about it now, but then I would have done it again. I loved that feeling. I loved watching him back down. I would have done that to everybody. And it might seem like a small, funny example, and it is. But he who is faithful in little is faithful in much. Right. And if that's how I act in the little things when no one's around, how am I going to act in the important things? Right. So that's the question that I want to put before you guys this morning, talking about the second aspect. Search yourselves. Examine yourself. Where do you have hidden sin in your pride? Even if it's small. Because if you leave it hidden, it will grow. I want to come to this last aspect that Paul lays out here, and it's that their mind is on earthly things. And Paul saves this one for last because it's the most destructive. 
It might seem like not that big a deal. You know, the first one is definitely the most obvious, I believe, uh, example of living as an enemy of the cross. But this one is the most pervasive and has the potential to do the most damage. Paul, uh, excuse me, Jesus talked about this once. He gave a sermon on being heavenly-minded or spiritually-minded. And what he said is to be spiritually-minded because in Matthew 6.21, he said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I want to piggyback his words and say that where your mind is, there your focus will be also. And sin doesn't just start. Sin doesn't just start with self-indulgence and living by your sinful nature and going crazy. It has a birth. And it starts with what you think about and what you focus on. And that will give birth to desire. And what I want to put before you this morning is you better believe that what you think about and what you desire, you will live for. And I want, to, I want to put a disclaimer here. When we're talking about earthly things, I don't mean that it's wrong to think about anything of this earth. There's many things in this earth that it's, it's right to think about. It's noble, it's admirable, it's praiseworthy and good. But what Paul's addressing here is when you start to focus on earthly things in such a way that you put them above God. Because it's the same point, that what you focus on above God, you will live for above God. And I want to share something with you. The consequences of this, of setting your mind on earthly things are a little bit harder to see in your life. You know, I think that if you live, if you're self-indulgent, you give in to a sinful passion and there's a consequence for that sin, it's easy to connect the dot, right? I did this, this happened. It makes sense. What's not as easy to see is when you set your mind on earthly things, it can be a little while before there's consequences to that. And you might not always connect all the dots in the middle. But what I I want to put before you is that if if you start to live like this in your life, if you start to walk according to an earthly mind, that is going to bleed over into every other aspect of your life. I share these things with you because they, they create a system. They create a downward spiral where if you start by setting your mind on earthly things, Pretty soon, it's a little easier to live by sinful passions. And a little bit after that, it's not too hard to start boasting in it and finding people who do the same. I want to share one last point on this idea of earthly things. If you're a Christian for any amount of time, you understand that there is a constant war and battle between an earthly mind and a spiritual mind, right? And I believe that all of us, Christian or not, have felt that pull but uh, being stretched between the two. And I want to take a moment to talk about something that I believe you can really feel that stretch with this topic. And if you were here a few weeks ago, you heard Joe speak about it. And the topic that I want to share, for, uh, share on for a few moments is tithing. Before I say anything about tithing, I want to be very clear that I don't mean to speak to any one person here. And I understand that every life has individual circumstances. I mean to speak to see me as a whole. And the other thing I want to be clear, that, and I hope you know, that from the bottom of my heart, I understand that you face consequences financially, burdens, demands, and obligations that I can't relate to, that I can't fathom. But when Joe was speaking about tithing, he said a few things, and it gave me a passion to share my heart about it. So that's what I want to do for a few moments.
but I just want to lay out the facts of the Simi Church financial situation as they are today. The fact is that a third of our church doesn't tithe in any discernible way. And a second third significantly under tithes. And if this trend continues, we won't exist inside of three years. I haven't been here that long, but I like it here. (laughs) And I would like to stay. I don't want to lose this. But the reality, the reason I want to bring this up this morning is that that's what we're faced with. And I don't want to ask, you know, if you were here, you heard Joe share that if we could donate $15 more per member per week, we would be self-supporting overnight. And I realize that's the goal, that's the ideal, that's what we're working towards. I get that that might not always happen that way. But I believe we can do it. And I believe we can get there to be self-supporting. I believe that because I'm a, I'm a living testament to your generosity. This sermon only exists because of your generosity. My role as an intern is completely dependent on you guys. I, I'm a living testament to the generosity in this church, in Shoreline Church. And I believe we can get there. But I don't want to ask you guys to do something that I'm not doing. And I want to share my heart behind tithing as well. I tithed before I was an intern, but when I became one, it took on an extra meaning for me because I was taking the church's money. I was taking God's money. And I had a conviction in my heart that if I was going to be taking God's money, I better be faithful with it. I didn't want to have to answer for why I wasn't. To me, that little chunk that I saved from not, that I would save from not tithing, it wasn't worth having to answer God on that question. So I want to ask you guys, again, speaking to the church as a whole, not an individual, that little chunk that you save from not tithing, is it worth losing all of this? We're going to come back to the scriptures right now. We looked at a little bit of what it's like to live as an enemy of the cross. And I don't need to tell you where that road ends. If you want I'll save you the suspense. You can look in the beginning of verse 19 and it tells you in black and white letters. But here's the main point that I want to make about those who live like this. Those who live like this face destruction. Verse 20. Keep reading. It says, But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. Now, I, know, I know that last topic was a little bit more heavy-handed and it's a little bit darker. Here, my hope is to encourage you. Amen. And my hope is to strengthen you. Because thank God there's a second path. And here, Paul lays it out a little bit. And it's the path of a Christian, the path of a disciple, a follower of God, whatever word you want to use. And he has, there's three different things, three different points that I want to make about what it's like to live in this path. And they're contained in those three bolded words that I have up there. So we're going to take a moment just to look at them real quick. The first one that I want to look at is that word citizenship. 
And, and that's what it looked like in the ancient Greek text. And what it translates to in English is polytuma. And we're going to look at something. The reason I bring this up, there was an interesting point that I learned as I was studying out this passage. Because if you notice, Paul is very clear to lay out different aspects of what the enemies of the cross look like, right? Their God is their stomach, glory in their shame, mind on earthly things. Those are obvious and practical. He doesn't do the same thing here. The reason why he doesn't do the same thing here is he's focused on something deeper, and we're going to get to that in the next two aspects. But I want to understand that Paul doesn't exclude practical Christianity from living as a disciple. He includes it through the use of this word, citizenship. It's, it, it is. It, what it is, is we, when we think about the word citizenship in the English language, we would understand it to mean something along the lines of, this person is a citizen of that kingdom. And it has primarily a legal meaning. The version of the word that Paul used, polytuma, it has a very distinct meaning. It carries that meaning, but it carries another meaning. And the meaning that it carries can best be translated into English something along the lines of this. Your, their, their con, the conduct of this person reflects the conduct of their kingdom. And that word polytuma, it carried what, the, what the, the term is connotations of conduct. So by incorporating this word, by choosing to use that language, what he's saying is you are a citizen of heaven, but do not forget that your conduct should reflect that. In the first three chapters of Philippians, Paul lays out several different Christian, Christian practicals to living. He doesn't take time to repeat them here. What he does is he focuses on something deeper. He focuses on the why, but he includes the what. And citizenship, citizenship is the what. And I'm going to take a few seconds because I believe Paul helped start the Philippian church. He raised it up. He, he wrote letters to it. He lived with them, and he displayed the example of what it's like to live as a Christian. He knew that the Philippians had a pretty decent idea of what it's like to live a Christian life, what that looks like. And I believe that we do too. By no means do we know everything. But I believe that if we said, what does it look like to live a Christian life? What does it look like to walk as a disciple? We could lay it out pretty well, right? We could get the rough picture. You know, involves prayer, reading the word, loving people, sacrificing, giving, walking in the light, being humble, all those things, right? And we could go on and on. The point is, the Philippians knew what it looks like to live as a Christian, and so do we. And what I want to say, before we start moving into the deeper things, is the first aspect, that first point of walking as a disciple, your conduct should reflect your kingdom. So we're going to start moving in now into the two deeper things that Paul looks at. And he looks at their focus and their hope. And he starts the focus with the is. And it's actually the is right after citizenship. And when, you, when I studied out this passage, scholars refer to this is as the emphatic is. That's the term for it. And here's the reason why. What Paul doesn't say is he doesn't say your, citizen, your citizenship will be in heaven. And he doesn't say it maybe someday might be, but he says that it is. And what he's doing there is he's drawing a firm line in the sand to give the Philippians a present focus. And if you look at this passage in the context of the whole thing, the last thing that he says about the enemies of the cross is their mind is on earthly things. The first thing he says about disciples and Christians 
is our citizenship is in heaven. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to draw a very stark comparison and contrast between the two. He lays out the two options. Because the Bible, like I said, gives you two paths, two options, the earthly and the spiritual. I want to I share because I don't know if you're anything like me, but if you are, I have a tendency to forget heaven. Now, I believe in it. I believe it's real. I believe it's there. I believe it's this great place where God is and Jesus is and there's no pain and there's no hurt and there's no trials or tribulations and it's fantastic. And we'll all be there one day. And when I live Monday through Sunday, I turn heaven into this fairy tale candy land. And I don't live with it real for me today. It doesn't have real implications in my life now. And here, Paul lays out a very different focus for a Christian. You know, it's what I said before. It's the same side of the coin I've already presented to you. What you focus on, you will live for. And I like to use the analogy of uh, Google Maps. You know, how to, if you're trying to get somewhere you've never been before, how do you do it? Well, the first thing is you start by being focused on where you want to end up. And you punch it in, you hit go, and it makes that nice little blue line for you, right? And as you go on your journey, you're careful. You pay attention to it. You check in with it. You're careful to follow it left and right, and it gets you where you want to go. Hey, have you ever been using Google Maps and you're not paying attention, something's happening in the car, and you go off course? Well, what happens? You get rerouted. You get that annoying little searing voice chirping in your head every two seconds because it's trying to change. you got to make a crazy turns left and right, and you end up not getting where you're trying to go on time. Christianity is the same way. If you don't live with an intentional focus on where you want to end up, you're going to take a wrong turn somewhere. You're going to get lost in the weeds. You're going to get trapped. And the worst, you might get abandoned and left behind. So I want to encourage you this morning. Paul is trying to direct their focus back, and the same should be true for us. Because the second aspect of walking as a disciple, all those things we do, is that if you're not focused on where you want to go, you, you may be effective as a Christian, but you'll never be as effective as you could be. Right. And you'll end up missing out. I want to take a second to look at this last aspect of living as a follower of God. And it has to do with the hope of a Christian. And it's in that word eagerly. Eagerly means a strong desire for. So in, in verse 20, when Paul says, we, we, await, we eagerly await a Savior from there, what he's saying is we have a strong desire for Christ to return. And this is a simple point, and it's obvious, but I think that that's exactly the reason that we miss it all the time in our lives. In your Christianity, do you live with a strong desire for Christ to return? Because Jesus is meant to be the why behind the what. He's meant to be our hope. Our hope, it's powerful. We take time this year to celebrate Him coming for us. Him loving us. Him sacrificing for us. Dying for us. That hope is meant to be what sustains you. And most of all, the hope of Him returning is meant to be what sustains you. And it's a powerful hope. It can give you energy when you have none left. It can help you to love that person you don't want to love or forgive that person who hurt you. 
It can help you to care for others or sacrifice, whatever the case might be. This hope is powerful enough to change your perspective on your life and to shift the weight of your circumstances if you let it. And that's the caveat here because what I've experienced in my life, I was thinking about this. Where do I put my hope if not in Christ? Because you're going to hope in something. And what I realized in my life is as a Christian, my Christianity, it's so easy to become about doing the what and I forget the why. Right. And I don't know if it's just how life is, but I can imagine what it grows into. My life looks like I got to get school done. I got to go to college. I got to get homework done. Right? I got to do, I got to pay my bills. I got rent. I got these friends. I got this. I got my family, my step family. So I got to work with that. And I'm sure life for you incorporates that too. I got this to do for my marriage, this to do for my kids, this to do for work, this to pay for the house, that for the bills. And there's so many to-dos that it can pull our, our hope from there to here. And if we're not careful, that to-do mentality, though it's good, it's good to do those things. Those things need to be done. But if we're not careful, it can bleed into our Christianity. And our Christianity can become, I got to pray. I got to read. I got to meet with this person. I'm helping to schedule this event, so I got to be there early. Then I'm cleaning up here, so I got to be there late. Then I got to follow up with that person and love this person and make sure my kids are reading and make sure my kids are praying. And it gets exhausting. And we lose sight of what's important. And I try to talk to the campus about this because the campus ministry, it's a hectic ministry. We do a lot of different things. There's a lot of meeting new people. You're out of yourself a lot. It's busy on the schedule. It requires a lot from you, simply put. And I try to encourage them, don't do all those things and forget the hope you have in Jesus. Because if your heart isn't behind what you do, one of two things is going to happen. Either one, you're going to do them for a while, and every time you do, it'll chip away at you, and it'll eat at you and beat you down to there's nothing left and you just stop. That's the first option. The second option is that if you do these things, without your heart and your hope being behind it. You might keep doing it, and you might do a great job, but the whole time it's slavery to you. Try to encourage campus. Don't live like that. Don't miss it, because if you do all those things perfectly, all those different Christian checklist boxes, then I commend you, and I hope to be more like you. But if you do all those things and you forget the hope of heaven, the hope of Christ's return, then you missed how sweet Christianity can be. And that's the final aspect that I want to talk about when we look at living as a follower of God. Your hope should be in Christ. Because if it is, then I encourage you to keep doing it. Help someone else get there. But if it's not, how do you expect to live with your hope in other things? Excuse me. How do you expect to put your hope in other things and then live for Christ? The two are oil and water, and they don't mix. But when you have your hope in Christ, and that's, that's the motivation, that's what spurs you on, and then you live for him because of that, it's a pretty straight path. That's how Christianity is designed to be. That's what Paul's trying to get the Philippians to see here. So I showed you a little bit about what it looks like to live as an enemy, and we touched on where that ends. Showed you a little bit about what it looks like to live as a follower, and I want to touch on where that path ends. 
So we're going to go back to Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to start at the boldest section. I'm just going to put our Lord Jesus before it. But our Lord Jesus will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. That's the end of that road, you guys. But I love what Paul says here because Paul doesn't just say, the first time, he's like, that past destruction. He lays it out and he doesn't, he doesn't beautify it. He doesn't play with it. He just says it and it's done, moves on. He doesn't say this path ends in heaven. And there's something cool that I like about that. And here's what it is. Think about what this is saying. Earlier in Philippians, Paul says that because Jesus obeyed God, he was exalted to the name above all names. That he was raised up above the earth, and that every, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess he is Lord. And here, just one chapter later, Paul says that Jesus will make us like him. You know, I think sometimes I shared already before a little bit, we believe heaven is real, but we don't live like we believe heaven is real. Or at least I know I don't. And one thing I want to share with you guys, sometimes I think about heaven. I wonder what it would be like to have a glorified body, a body that looks like God's. I wonder what it would be like to walk in a garden and be able to talk to Moses and ask him, what did you feel at the burning bush? What was it like to get the Ten Commandments? Or to ask Abraham, Abraham, how did you feel when you held Isaac for the first time? Maybe Peter's sitting down. Maybe he's eating a fish or something like that. I don't know if they have food in heaven, but I like food, so in, my, in heaven there's food for me <laughs> until we get there. But maybe he's eating a fish, and you sit down with him, and you're eating together, and you ask him, hey, when Jesus said, I'll make you a fisher of men, did you ever think he meant this? Did you ever see what was coming? And I imagine what it would be like to see Christ for the first time. And he's actually there. And like Thomas, you can put your hand in his side and you can touch him. You can put your finger through his palm. And I wonder, what are his eyes like? And I try to think what it would be like to stand before him face to face and just say thank you. That's heaven. You guys, because I proclaim to you today that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And that's real. Moses, Abraham, Peter, Daniel, all, David, they're still living. If you believe in heaven, as the Bible is, you believe in that. And I wonder what it would be like, you guys, to walk down the road. And maybe I'm standing in line somewhere in heaven, and I see Hallie down the street. And I wonder, maybe, maybe she's down there, she's talking, but for a second our eyes meet. Would we remember all the times we fell over at the Skating Plus Devo? You know? Or maybe I'm eating and I'm grabbing a burger with my brother and we're sitting there and I steal his last fry. Would we remember in heaven all the times we fought over that last cookie? Because that's the end of the road. And I have a dream, you guys. I have a dream about heaven. Besides God and, all of, and whatever that's going to be, the deepest dream that I have in heaven is for my mom. If you don't know, my mom is an alcoholic. And it's, it's a really sad story because... She had a few traumatic experiences happen to her as a kid, and she was never able to get past it. And those experiences have robbed her life from her. 
And one hope that I have, when I think about heaven, when I think about the power and the reality of it, I hope that one day I turn and I look down the street and I see my mom coming towards me. And for the first time in my life, I could see her smile free of pain and of guilt. That's the power at the end of the second road, you guys. And I want to encourage you, in your life, don't miss it. Because why else do you walk a path if not to get to the destination? That's what it's all about. We're going to come in here for a close, you guys. And I started the sermon by talking about how different life begins. Right? It's different for all of us. It's unique. But the cool thing is it ends the same for everybody. One of two options. And what God does is he basically he stands there and he holds out both to you simultaneously and says, pick. I told you the main point of my lesson before we started. But the, the, the main idea that I want to communicate to you guys, when we talk about paths, when we talk about destinations, the main point I want to put before you is you choose where your path ends. So that's all I have for you guys today. We're going to come back to, this, to the front here. And as we close out, in a moment we're going to pray, but I just want to share one last thought with you guys. Here at Simi Church, our dream is to change our world for Christ. If you've been moved today by anything you heard, anything you experienced, I encourage you, we're here to help. Talk to somebody here. Talk to the person who brought you. Ask more. We'd love to tell you. We'd love to show you. Thank you very much, you guys. Thank you. We're going to bow our heads. Well, thank you very much. We're going to bow our heads. We'll close out in a word of prayer, and then you'll be dismissed. Father God, I just want to come before you this morning, and I want to thank you, Lord, that you hold out a path for us, a path that leads back to you. God, I pray that at this time of year, especially the next couple of days when it gets really crazy, God, I pray that we would remember that path and remember you. I pray, God, that we would take some time to thank you, Lord, that you came down to clear that way for us. Lord, I just I want to express to you my gratitude and my hope in your name. I pray for each person here, God, that you would just be with them through this season and lead them wherever they're at in their lives closer to you. Lord, we give you all the glory. It's in your name we pray. Thank you. Amen. Guys, you're dismissed. Thank you very much. How do you end that?